You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie near Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for your ongoing support. Please keep voting for us in the podcast magazine Hot 50. I swear that once we made it into the top 10, I will stop begging you. But <laughs> I'm going to start begging you for your podcast award award because that season will start soon. <laughs> so yeah, for now, just please go to podcastmagazine.com slash hot50. Use your daily vote. Remember, you have one vote per day for your three favorite podcasts. Yeah, yeah. that's important. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. And you know who else we appreciate? Our newest Patreon members. Also, our long-term yes. Patreon members. Thank you, everyone in Patreon. We love you. Our new Patreon members are Marie Hannon. Thank you, Marie. Hollis. Thanks very much. Alyssa Graybill, which sounds like the heroine in a gothic novel, and Karina Van Berkham. Thank you so much. We're so grateful. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. All right, I think that's it for now. For more information, please listen until the end of the episode, and we'll tell you more about Patreon. But for now, we're going to jump right into it. What are we going to discuss today, Johanna? Well, I think we can all agree that the last two years kind of sucked. Did they? And we aren't even really done yet. I mean, who knows what else is waiting for us? So I don't know how you feel, Annie, but I often catch myself being a little bit, a little bit gloomy and thinking, what's the point even? Everything is horrible and it will only get more horrible. But then I remind myself that there are still so many things to be thankful for and to look forward to. Yeah. I take a long walk with the dogs in the woods behind our house and I look at all the beautiful things in the nature and it really makes me feel better. And during one of those walks, I was thinking, are we truly living in the most horrible era ever? And I mean, of course we are not. There have been so many more or equally horrible times in the history of mankind. And so Annie and I thought, hey, maybe it makes us feel better to talk about those years, you know, when humans thought to themselves, well, fuck this stupid year. Yeah, that's right. This year can fuck right off. <laughs> And it's not a stop complaining other people had it worse thing at all. No. No. Everybody deserves to complain. We all deserve it. We all need to. Yes. And then we just keep fucking going because what else are you going to do? But along the way, it might help all of us to just hear that somehow the world was always more or less horrible, right? <laughs> but also more or less amazing at the same time. It's fascinating. Yeah. We're not going to talk about World War One or World War Two because, duh. I mean, really. Also, lots of people around the world are affected by war, and they're listening to podcasts yeah. to get away from that. And I think we can also agree that, you know, we all know that those years were terrible years to, to live through. We, we know about those. Today, we're going to learn about all the horrible things mankind survived as a reminder that this shit too shall pass. It will. I mean, like, eventually, probably. Right? I Yeah, right. it will. Right? One day. Okay. So, without further ado, <laughs> let us present to you the most horrible years in the history of humanity to live through, or, as we like to call it, what a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a new review. It's like... <laughs> All right. Small note in this episode, uh, we did try to find years that impacted the most people on a global level, and we are not putting this in any kind of chronological or any other kind of order, but we are saving, I think, the worst for last. Yeah? Mm. So, Johanna, would you like to, to begin? My pleasure. So, I would like to name the year 73,000 B.C., now you might think, what the hell, Johanna? 73,000 BC? Who the fuck cares about 73,000 BC? How was that one of the worst years for humanity? Well, let me tell you. Tell me. First of all, let's go back a little bit. You know, you always need the basics. When we look at the timeline of the evolution of life on this planet, we see that 360 million years ago or so, some bored fish decided to grow some limbs and crawl out of the ocean. And that's how he started the whole misery we are in today. I mean, it's not entirely accurate. He didn't crawl out of the ocean. Actually, a freshwater fish. The more you know. 222 million years ago, the first mammals appeared. The first primates show up roughly 60 million years ago. And then boom! 18 million years ago, our great ape ancestor enters the stage. Did I mention that I'm Catholic? I was just going to say. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> I'm waiting for the strongly worded letters. 1.9 million years ago, our great ape ancestor had evolved into the Homo erectus, the first one to control fire, apparently, thus changing our history forever. This is exciting. I'm absolutely no expert on early history, and I've been out of school for over 20 years now. I'm sure there are constantly, you know, new discoveries and things to find out. But as far as I understand, most scientists are still in agreement that Africa is the birthplace of humans. So now these humans are there with their fire in Africa and they are doing okay-ish. They are evolving and evolving and they are slowly starting to spread over and out of Africa. One of the more interesting small facts I, I learned was that fire is the reason our brains grew. So because plants and animals that are cooked are easier for your body to digest. So when we started cooking food, we didn't need those enormous jaws anymore to chew raw meats and, and plant matter. So our jaws started to shrink, which left more space for our brains to expand. It's also why I can only eat tender cuts of meat like filet or tenderloin cooked medium well, because it's easy to digest. So if you know someone who struggles to digest meat, tell them to try it cooked more. So fascinating. It really is. So, okay. They are there in and a little bit out of Africa. But then, probably, as I said, 73,000 BC, we don't know the exact date, something happened that almost managed to extinct our ancestors. A volcano in Sumatra erupted. This volcano, called Toba, was not a mere volcano. It was a super volcano. It's basically, theoretically, the biggest volcano eruption ever. I mean, I say theoretically because, I mean, nobody was there to write down what happened, right? We just have to trust the scientists there. Wikipedia gives us this quick summary. Quote, The youngest Toba eruption occurred at the present location of Lake Toba in Indonesia about 75,000 plus or minus 900 years ago, according to potassium-argon dating. 
This eruption was the last and largest of four eruptions of the Toba Caldera complex during the Quaternary period and is also recognized from its diagnostic horizon of Ashfall, the youngest Toba tuff. It had an estimated volcanic explosivity index, also called VEI, of 8, which is the highest rating on the scale. The erupted mass was, at the very least, 12 times greater than that of the largest volcanic eruption in recent history, which is the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. Keep that in mind, we will be talking about that one in a bit. Um, the quote continues. Toba's erupted mass deposited an ash layer of about 15 centimeters, or 6 inch, thick over the whole of South Asia. A blanket of volcanic ash was also deposited over the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea and the South China Sea. Deep sea cores retrieved from the South China Sea have extended the known reach of the eruption, suggesting that the 2,800 cubic kilometers, which is 670 cubic miles, whew, that's a lot, Yeah. calculation of the erupted mass is a minimum value or even an underestimate. Based on new methods, the Toba Caldera complex possibly erupted as much as 13,200 cubic kilometers or 3,200 cubic miles in total bulk volume. This has led to some sources labeling the youngest Toba eruption as a VEI 9 event. End quote. That's not even on the scale anymore. Okay, so this was a big, big eruption. I think it's pretty much inconceivable for us. Inco it's inconceivable. Inconceivable. <laughs> how, how big this eruption probably was. And because this was such a huge natural disaster, there are now theories about how it influenced life on this planet. Well, scientists think that first of all, you know, all the hot ash and rocks that came out of the volcano, and they formed a very thick layer and that caused many plants to die. Obviously, if plants die, animals starve. And not only that, because of all that ash and dust that was spit out by Toba, sunlight was dimmed for up to six years. Can you even imagine? Mm. So, okay, nothing will grow for lack of sunlight, and also the sunlight will get reflected off the particles in the air, and the earth now cools down. So you have dead plants, starving animals, and that means starving Homo sapiens. And we are not even talking about the polluted air that they were breathing in. Humanity got almost extinct before it even really started. Many scientists theorized that roughly 1,000 to 3,000 humans survived. Some think even less. So from now on, if you are having a hard day and you think you can't, remember that you are a descendant of this handful of humans who survived the supervolcanic eruption. That sounds terrible. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's it really is. <laughs> I love these massive disasters and the terrible, terrible movies that are made about them. I have I have a real fondness for bad volcano movies. All right, so I think next I would like to take you back to 1520. Now, when Columbus arrived in the so-called New World, because it was new to Europeans, in 1492, we could argue that that was a really horrible year for the indigenous people of the continent. It was an amazing year for rich Europeans, because they would become even richer as a result of it. Poor Europeans would at least get potatoes out of it in the long run. I do really like potatoes. And they were so important for the Europeans. They kept people alive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
But this is not going to be an episode where we're going to get into every atrocity that settlers and colonizers committed in the Americas. There are honestly too many years that would be eligible to be on that list. It's There's a lot. We picked 1520, and the reason we did that is, well, you're going to need a little bit of background information on that one. So first you need to know about Hernan Cortez. He was one of the Spanish conquistadors that was to lead an expedition and fight indigenous people for the Spanish crown. Cortez was on the search for fame and riches, and he wanted to try his luck in the newly discovered world. First, he went to Hispaniola and then on to Cuba, where he worked as a magistrate, and he gained the respect and trust of Diego Velazquez, another infamous conquistador. However, their relationship soon turned sour because of a woman. Cortes started something with Velazquez's sister-in-law, and that's what made him kind of upset. Is that important? No, right? Um, sure, I would keep that in there. 1519, he was elected as a captain for the expedition to the mainland by Velazquez, meaning the North American continent in this case. He was about to be sent to Mexico. But Velazquez soon changed his mind because of their estrangement and basically revoked the deployment. Cortez decided to just stick his fingers in his ears and pretend he'd never heard it. He's like, ah, la, 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 sorry. Did you say something? Oh, so sorry. Because, yeah, he completely ignored that order and he left anyway, which was basically mutiny, right? But he had over 500 men on 11 ships and he sailed off into the sunset heading for Mexico. He actually landed in my old home first, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, and listen, this whole episode, it's basically us oversimplifying history to you to say, you know, hey, it's not all that bad at the moment. And, and seriously, each one of these stories could really be their own individual episode. But we just wanted to talk to you about some of some of the bad times without getting into that much detail. Mm. And, and I think it's also important to know here that uh, Cortez didn't really have any leadership or military experience, did he? But what he lacked in experience, he made up for with confidence because he just made his way through Tabasco, where he enslaved two dozen women. Yeah, I think he used them as, well, he was fighting uh, against a tribe and he, he and his men won. And then they received more fighters, I think, and 20 women, enslaved women. And I think he used them as translators. And I also know that one of them was Lama Linche. Mm. I know that because my ex-husband often told me about her. It's it's all really a fascinating story. Yeah, that's yeah. That she could be her own episode, really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So he led his men up the coast to Beta Cruz, and there he met some Aztec noblemen and asked them to arrange a meeting with their king, Moctezuma II. But the Aztec king, who resided at Tenochtitlan, pretty much where Mexico City is nowadays, was like, thanks, but no thanks. But that did not stop <laughs> Cortez. He really wanted to see the king, and he was going to see the king. So he started marching toward Tenochtitlan. Nowadays, that's a four and a half to five hour drive from Veracruz. But the way he went was obviously much longer. They didn't have ways. There were problems with the roads, uh, a lot of snakes, just detours of the time, right? But along the way, Cortez did find some native tribes who became his allies, and his group kept getting bigger and bigger. On the 9th of November, 1519, they reached Tenochtitlan and were granted entry into the city. Now, what I haven't told you yet was that Tenochtitlan 
was built in the middle of a lake. It was like on a man-made island on a lake, and it was located on Lake Texcoco. And it was connected to the mainland with bridges. One of Cortez's men had said the following about the city, quote, When we saw so many cities and villages built in the water and other great towns on dry land, we were amazed and said that it was like the enchantments, on account of the great towers and queues and buildings rising from the water, and all built of masonry. And some of our soldiers even asked whether the things that we saw were not a dream. I do not know how to describe it, seeing things as we did that had never been heard of or seen before, not even dreamed about, end quote. It must have really been incredible, right? We're also mm-hmm. going to post a link to a letter that was written by Cortez where he describes Tenochtitlan, which is very interesting. I think I've made it very clear that I'm so highly fascinated by all these kind of explorer stories. Yes. Like, just like the man on the bounty. You know why I love this thing so much? Because imagine all of a sudden you find yourself in the South Sea, for example, and you're seeing things you wouldn't have imagined in your wildest dreams. It's amazing, isn't things it? Things nobody in your, in your family, in your little kind of city, town, village ever saw before. It's, I, that's, it's amazing. It was, what a time to be alive, right? <laughs> I'm just bringing it back because I'm a professional. But I think the days days are like over for us now, aren't they? Kind of, right? Like, because today, don't get me wrong, but most of the things that we see now, we've already seen photos or video of, which it's it's great because most people won't get to see lots of certain things. And so it's great that we have photos that we can see, but also it means you're never really going to get that massive element of surprise again, right? Like. The first time you see a whale in real life, you you know what you're looking at. You know it's a whale, yeah, right? I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, if you're not exploring the deep, deep, deep ocean mm. or the rainforests, or going to the final frontier where no man has ever gone before, you're not going to experience that anymore nowadays. It's true. Yeah. So. Moctezuma, he welcomed Cortez and his men because he thought that this way he could study them and sort of figure out what their weak points were. Letting them into his city was the first mistake. The second mistake was showering them with gold and other precious gifts. He thought that it would earn their respect, but it just fueled their greed. I had read something where I think he had gifted them with a solid gold Aztec calendar on a disc and then another in silver, which... Cortez sort of immediately just melted down to use his money. Yeah, and the funny thing was, he was like, uh, gold? I don't have so much gold, but here, take it. Like, you can take all the gold. It didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything or not that much to them as it did to To the Europeans. To the conquistadores. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And it was just billions, billions in today's money of dollars in gold and just precious resources and how much art, you know, how much... Just how much of that culture was lost because of that, right? I don't know. It's it's wild to think about. So Cortez took the king hostage and then basically had the city in his hands over the next months. And then news arrived that more Spanish men had landed on the coast. Soldiers sent by Velasquez to arrest the mutineer Cortez. 
So Cortez left the city, hurried to meet the soldiers, and promised them riches beyond their wildest dreams if they would just join him. Riches beyond your wildest dreams are hard to resist. And so, yeah, yeah, they were like, sure, what are you going to do? That sounds great. Let's go. I mean, (laughs) what was he going to do? Write you a really strongly worded letter that you'd get in several months (laughs) if it ever found its way to you? Lower stakes back then is all I'm saying. So... Off they went with Cortez, and they followed him back. When Cortez was gone, the remaining Spanish soldiers had started fighting against the inhabitants of the city, and they killed a lot of the noblemen and priests. This, of course, enraged the Aztec people even more, and problems had been brewing for weeks already, and suddenly they began to revolt against Moctezuma, who was seen as a friend of the Spaniards by his own people, and they elected a new ruler. Once Cortes returned, Moctezuma was stoned to death. At least that's what the conquistadors reported later. According to the Aztecs, it was actually Spanish soldiers who had murdered the emperor. What do you think happened? I wouldn't know. Seriously, I can see both things happening because people were really upset with Moctezuma, but also the conquistadors, the Spanish, have not a great track record of being the best people. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. What do you think? I agree. I think there's just, I can also see it either way. Yeah. Yeah. Cortez and his men, so they were placed under house arrest and were prevented from leaving the city. It was on the night of the 30th of June to the 1st of July, 1520, that Cortez and his army tried to flee the city. Their attempt was discovered and a battle ensued, badly wounding and killing many Aztec warriors and Spanish soldiers. Many of the conquistadors, who managed not to get killed by their enemies, died in another macabre way. They slipped and fell into the lake, where they drowned, because they were pulled down by the weight of all the gold they were trying to steal from the city. Schadenfreude. A little bit, right? Just, mm. So, hundreds of Spanish men and thousands of their native allies died that night, which became known as La Noche Triste, the sad night. Cortez regrouped and reinforced his troops. He returned to Tenochtitlan and besieged the city for 90 days, before managing to destroy the city completely. This was almost the end for the once so powerful Aztec Empire. In August of 1521, the last Aztec emperor was captured and Cortez could officially claim the territory for the Spanish crown. The new capital, named Mexico City, was built on the ruins of Tenochtitlan. I think I told you that when I did Paul's dad's genealogy, he goes right back to Moctezuma II, which Mm. was a fun find. I'm so into that genealogy stuff. All right. Now, you might ask yourself how this comparably small group of invaders managed to overpower the big army of the very skilled Aztec soldiers and completely destroy this huge city. Well, the Spanish soldiers came with a secret weapon, a teeny tiny secret weapon called Variola Major, otherwise known as smallpox. They had brought the deadly disease, and as they made their way through Mexico, it spread with them. 40% of the inhabitants of Tenochtitlan were wiped out by the virus. Britannica.com says this about it, quote, Smallpox, also called variola major, acute infectious disease that begins with a high fever, headache, and back pain, and then proceeds to an eruption on the skin that leaves the face and limbs covered with cratered pockmarks or pox. 
For centuries, smallpox was one of the world's most dreaded plagues, killing as many as 30% of its victims, most of them children. Those who survived were permanently immune to a second infection, but they faced a lifetime of disfigurement and, in some cases, blindness. End quote. The indigenous people were even more likely to contract and die from the disease because, of course, they had never been confronted with the virus and none of them had any natural immunity. And the Aztecs were not the only ones who suffered from the pandemic, so did the Mayans and the Incas. A monk who was traveling with Cortes described what he saw, quote, As the Indians did not know the remedy of the disease, they died in heaps, like bedbugs. In many places, it happened that everyone in a house died, and as it was impossible to bury the great number of dead, they pulled down the houses over them, so that their homes became their tombs. End quote. That's harsh. But that's how these advanced civilizations all over Middle and South America were just wiped out so quickly. Gone. I'm fascinated by it. I mean, it's it's extremely sad and upsetting, but it's also fascinating. Oh, Don't yeah. get me wrong. Just a couple of days ago, I read about another conquistador, uh, Francisco de Oriana, who explored the whole length of the Amazonas. And I think that was in the early 1540s. And when he returned to Spain, he told the king about these huge cities all along the river, like flourishing, rich cities. And the king told Oriana to undertake a second expedition. I mean, he wanted to have the riches, the gold, everything, right? Mm -hmm. So... Oriana and his men returned to the uh, Amazonas only three years later, and he couldn't find these cities anymore. And now, obviously, everybody thought, what a fucking liar, you <laughs> know? He was making up this whole story about these cities. But now, it's actually believed that these cities had been basically wiped out by smallpox, and the rainforest had just swallowed the cities before Oriana could return. Wild. I might be misremembering or mixing up things a little bit. I have to read up more on it, but I just thought, how sad and fascinating at the same time that such empires could just cease to exist in such a very short amount of time. Did you see, is there any kind of evidence for it when you're in Mexico City, when you were there? In Mexico City? I haven't been a lot to Mexico City. You visited though, right? Did you visit? I visited, yeah. but I've been more to uh, Mayan places like... Chichen Itza. Yeah. I still could go up uh, the the big pyramid in Chichen Itza. So I really want to go. That's not allowed anymore. Really, really yeah. want to go to Mexico. It's fascinating. And they show also photos uh, when they discovered Chichen Itza or rediscovered Chichen Itza, how it was really completely swallowed up by, by the, jungle, the jungle. Right? Yeah. And you could barely see it. And then when they started to... to when they started to clear it and un uncover it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm archaeological dig fascinating yeah it's amazing i i just i want to go to mexico so badly we need to plan a trip there but probably after i get to vienna all right uh let's move on to 1816 the year without a summer which is my personal nightmare i'd be okay with it no thank you yeah if i had to give <laughs> up one season it would be summer 1816 this is the story of another volcano eruption Again, a volcano in Indonesia called Mount Tambora. I told you before, remember that name. This volcano is a 2,800 meter or 9,350 feet high so-called stratovolcano. All I will tell you is that a stratovolcano is this kind of typical volcano. You know, if you tell a kid, go draw a volcano, that's probably what they will draw. This typical steep mountain-shaped volcanoes. Yep. Every science project. 
Yeah, of course, there are more scientific characteristics for the different types of volcanoes, but who has the time for that? Not us, not right now. No. So in 1815, this volcano that had been dormant for several centuries before that fateful year erupted. The eruption started on 5th of April. The sounds, rumble, thunder, and something that sounded like guns could be heard as far as Sumatra, which lies in a distance of 2,600 kilometers or 1,600 miles from Mount Tamboro. That's wild. I mean, that's really wild. Yeah. On 10th of April, around 7 in the evening, three geysers of lava shot into the air, then joined together to become a massive lava flow, quickly covering the mountain. There were huge pieces of pumice, up to 20 centimeters, so imagine a soccer ball or a football. Yeah. So that's scary big chunks, you know, yeah. that are falling from the sky. And the ash, you know, so much ash, it would reach as far as West Java, which is uh, 1,300 kilometers or roughly 800 miles away. And this all started to fall at 9 p.m. And meanwhile, the lava flow was still pouring down the mountain toward the sea, utterly destroying the village of Tambora. Terrifyingly loud explosions were heard for another 24 hours or so, and the top of the mountain was blown off with the explosion and becomes part of the ash and, and you know, the debris which would continue to fall for a week. I read somewhere that uh, the, the eruption immediately caused like 90,000 90, deaths. I'm not sure if that's true, because that sounds like a lot, but... It's probably I mean, true. Could be. I could see that. When I told you about the supervolcano from 73,000 BC, I told you about the VEI, the Volcanic Explosivity Index. Everybody is going to love how many Vs I'm seeing today. It's pretty great. This eruption was a 7 on that index, a 7, making it the biggest eruption in recorded history. And so much ash and dust was spit out, the Center for Science Education says about it, quote, Mount Tambora ejected so much ash and aerosols into the atmosphere that the sky darkened and the sun was blocked from view. The large particles spewed by the volcano fell to the ground nearby, covering towns with enough ash to collapse homes. There are reports that several feet of ash was floating on the ocean surface in the region. Ships had to plow through it to get from place to place. It's wild. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it's so disturbing to think about. But just as before with Toba, the ash and debris was not the only problem caused by the volcano. Another issue was once more the particles that were polluting the atmosphere, blocking out the sunlight, like a huge parasol in a way. Or like in that Simpsons episode where, uh, God, what's his name? Mr. Burns is blocking the sun. <laughs> oh, Mr. Burns. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not blocking the sun only in the area close to Mount Tambora. The particles spread all over the northern hemisphere, causing a temporary climate change in Europe, North America, and parts of Asia. Not immediately after the eruption, but the spring and summer of 1816 showed record low temperatures, which were 0.4 to 0.7 degrees Celsius or 0.7 to 1 degree Fahrenheit, lower than average. These temperatures from 1816 were the lowest recorded temperatures between 1766 and the year 2000. And I know you're all going to think, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, who actually cares about that little of a difference? I'll tell you who cares. Everybody did care because people started to call 1816 and 1817 1800 and froze to death. Yeah. 
It's always good to keep a bit of dark humor. It's very funny. And it's not like it was just cold. It would be kind of pleasant one day, and the next day snow is falling. So basically what we have in March or April, but imagine having that for the whole summer or for two summers. Uh -uh. No, no, I don't think my migraines could take it. I'm crazy just thinking about it. I mean, our springs are like that, but not to that extreme and not for that long a period of time. That's a nightmare. For a moment, imagine being, I don't know, a peasant in Ireland or a farmer in New England. And you have no idea that a place named Dutch East Indies, which was the name of Indonesia back then, even exists. You don't know anything about any volcano eruption. You know, you're just out there waiting for spring to come so they can start working the field. But instead, all you see is some weird yellowish fog turning the sun red. And it's blocking out most of the sunlight. And man, it's it's kind of cold, right? Mm-hmm. You have no idea what's going on. But you know it ain't good. Crops didn't grow as expected and Europe had just been through a really rough time already because there were the Napoleonic Wars. And a row of smaller eruptions of other volcanoes had started in 1812 and that had already had a negative effect on the climate. Harvest had been bad for a, for a while now already. Not as bad as in 1816, 1817. But yeah, it, it was very rough years already. And now people were basically starving food prices skyrocketed, and in many European cities, people started to riot and revolt. And over the big pond in North America, things happened like people in Vermont were actually freezing Mm -hmm. during summer. Frost as late as June killed the crops. The livestock didn't have enough food. Canada experienced a milk and bread shortage. On the 29th of June, 1816, the Alexandria Gazette printed the following letter from a reader who was living in Jackson, Maine. Quote, Jackson, District of Maine, June 12, 1816. Reading in your paper accounts from different parts of the state of the season, I send to you some account of it in this plantation, and for many miles round. On the 6th we had a most violent and heavy storm from the west-northwest, blowing very hard, accompanied with a heavy cold rain and snow, Had it been snow alone, I doubt not that it would have been six inches deep or more on level. On the seventh morning, a very severe hard frost with ice half an inch thick, so that all vegetation nearly received its death blow, and what corn was planted, as also the leaves of the young beeches and many other trees, totally destroyed. In the evening, the atmosphere so intensely cold that the small birds, our annual visitors from the southward, sought for shelter in people's houses and barns. Many of them, with the swallows, were found starved and frozen to death on the morning of the 8th. Mm. Let's skip that part. Hang on. Also, a severe frost with plenty of ice, which greatly affected the young clovers, And I'm sorry to add that round this country for many miles, and in this the neighboring plantations, that useful animal sheep, many of which had been sheared, have perished, although housed, through the inclemency of the weather. The fields are as bare of herbage as usually in the month of November, and the verdure of the forest has the appearance of the fall instead of summer, the air so cold that the laborers mostly wear mittens in the morning. End quote. That is... So sad. So sad that your livestock is freezing to death in June. That's, yeah. yeah, that's... I've never been to Maine, but they do experience cold weather. It's not that they don't know cold weather, but they were not prepared for that in summer, I guess, right? It 
kind of took them by surprise. Yeah, and that's exactly. There are many months where, uh, in everywhere in New England, where it's too cold, you'll die of exposure overnight. Yeah. But not in June. And it's also speculated that the cholera pandemic that spread between 1817 and 1824 from India to, middle, to the Middle East and onto the Mediterranean was way more devastating because of the famine caused by Mount Tambora. People were simply too weak to withstand the cholera virus, and several million people died of cholera in those years. And again, it's scary how fragile our world is in a way. You know, a butterfly flaps its wing, a volcano ejects ashes into the atmosphere, and several million people die. Yeah. Apparently, volcanoes can really fuck us up big time, because the two incidents I told you already today were not the only times that a volcano eruption had a huge negative impact on mankind. Uh, just like roughly 40 years before that, in, in 1783, the volcano Laki erupted uh, in Iceland, influencing the rain season in Africa and Asia, causing famine in Japan, Egypt and India, killing a huge part of the population. In Europe, people died from inhaling sulfur dioxide gas that spread from Iceland to Denmark to Norway to France to Germany to Bohemia. And the next two summers were extremely hot. Hailstorms destroyed crops, cattle died. So I think we can all agree 1815 as well as 1783 were bad years for humanity. Terrible. Yeah, definitely. But you know what? Even back then, people were like, okay, this really sucks. But what is your something good? <laughs> in Switzerland, a couple of poets did spend the summer in a mansion near Lake Geneva. And because the weather was so bad and they were stuck in the house most of the time, they decided to do something good. A competition of a kind. Everyone had to come up with a creepy story and had to read it to the others. And who were these poets? Well, some rather unknown names like a certain Lord Byron, for example, and a woman named Mary Shelley. Yeah, the author of Frankenstein. And in a way, the year without a summer was responsible for creating Frankenstein. I love that. All right. <laughs> I would like to end this week's episode with the year that was voted worst year in the history of mankind by historians and scientists. And that is, drumroll please, <laughs> 536. You're our winner. You're the worst. 536. And again, it all starts with just weird climate phenomena, right? So a strange fog appears, which I think at this point, if you see a strange fog appearing, just fucking get out yeah. of there. Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but it won't be good. Just nope right out of there. So what happened was a strange fog appeared that would block out the sun in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East for 18 months. And you might have already guessed it. The culprit would once more be a volcano. Once again, in Iceland. In a text by the Byzantine historian Procopius, we find the following, quote, For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during the whole year, end quote. That is no fun. And again, temperatures dropped, but this time they probably dropped between one and a half and two and a half degrees Celsius, so three to five degrees Fahrenheit. I think, I think that's what it is. It dropped, the temperature dropped, and it caused the coldest summer in more than 2,300 years, causing snow to fall. But not only in Europe, this was, again, a problem all over the world, as far as we know today. 
Snow fell in China during the summer, again killing most of the crops. South Africa experienced three months of heavy rain, flooding in many areas, following by months of drought. That was no fun. And then, of course, all of this causes famine. People were starving, and those who managed to stay alive were hit with what? That's right, another plague. In 541, the Black Death spread for the first time in Europe, coming from Egypt, spread by Roman soldiers. During that first pest pandemic, the disease was known as Justinian Plague, named after the Byzantine emperor Justinian I, who apparently contracted the plague but recovered from it. At least a third of the population of the Byzantine Empire, or as it's called, the Eastern Roman Empire, died, and this of course played a role in the downfall of the Byzantine Empire over the next century. Scientists believe that due to the climate, the killed crops and failed harvests, and the plague, that's a lot. Mm. That's that's too a lot. much. That's just too it's much. Too, it's it is. It's too many volcanoes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fifty to one hundred million people died. There are estimates that suggest that the world population at the time was around one hundred ninety million people, which means it's possible that in less than a decade, fifty percent of humanity was wiped off the face of the earth. It's wild. It's seriously wild. And that's, I mean, yeah, yeah. but our ancestors kind of got through it and we are here, uh, 2022. Right. As long as there is no super volcano eruption now, things will be fine, maybe, possibly. Can we, is, is that like a given or? There's no way that I'm going to say that out loud. <laughs> I'm not going to say that yeah, for the universe right. to hear me. There's, <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. No, no. One can hope. So those those are some pretty terrible times to be around. Yeah. Are you the sort of person who, if there was a mass extinction event, would you would you be in your shelter preparing to rebuild the earth, or or would you want to be at ground zero? It depends. If it's like a nuclear catastrophe where I have to be in a bunker for the next fifty years, I would say fuck that. But if it's like zombies or I don't know. Something like like these super volcano things, and I I would survive the the initial impact. I would totally try to stay alive. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> and you, you're like, no, I think I I think I just go right to ground zero. <laughs> I'm not. Well, I'm not a good person to have, though, am I? Because I require a lot of resources. Like it would be hard to keep me alive. So okay, but if it's if it's the zombiecalypse. It's always good to have people yeah. you can sacrifice. That's true. Like I can push you in front yeah. of the zombies and and run away. Yeah. Also, <laughs> if everyone's starving, like <laughs> I bet I'm pretty well marbled. I'm basically inedible at this point. Yeah, I think we don't um, have to have to. I mean, we're gonna say it now, but all these times, cannibalism was was a thing even in the year without a summer, eighteen sixteen. So oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course it was. I think people make too big a deal about that kind of situ that stuff. I don't know. Personally, I think. I mean, if it's if it's what you have to do uh, to survive, I couldn't eat my loved ones though. I don't think I could. No. Oh God, no. I <laughs> I really made an effort some years ago to, whenever I could, buy from local farms as opposed to factory farms. But the closest one to my house, I wouldn't go to because I knew those cows. Yeah. I drove past them every day. No. So yeah, I get that. All right. That's it. <laughs> Something good. That's it. We're going to stop now. 
there's nothing. There's just nothing. There's just nothing. It's just all doom and gloom and we should just give up now. No, my something good is that next week Philip is coming home for vacation for 10 days, 12 days. That's always something good. Also, my sister and I are going to go to a barefoot trail on Friday with my nephew. Do Do you have those? I don't think so. What is it? It's where they put different stones and, and, I don't know, pebbles and leaves and mud and you walk there barefoot to, you know, experience the sensation of hurting your feet, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I think they'd be so numb from the cold here that you wouldn't feel (laughs) the pain. Like, it's still quite chilly here. My daffodils finally came up, so... Yay, daffodils and forsythia. There's a daffodil festival on the Cape this weekend. So I think you and I are similar in that we don't, yellow flowers aren't really our favorites, but there is something about daffodil and forsythia here that just that really bright, shocking yellow against the green grass that's just such a sure sign that spring is here. And we're one more day closer to fall. But the the yellow is very important in spring. Yeah. Especially for the insects. For the bees. Yeah. Yeah. We have all our all our dandelions on the lawn are starting to bloom. We do have dandelions in our lawn. Yeah. It's fine as long as it's green. But yeah, oh there's something else. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. My replacement trophy came. And was it okay this time? It was. I don't know if we ever told anybody the story. So, you you remember we won the the podcast awards and they sent us our trophies and Johanna's arrived. It, which was a surprise several weeks before mine. True. Um, I assumed they were shipped from the U.S., so I thought, that's weird. But I was so excited because it was my first ever trophy. And so I opened it up and uh, it was broken in Aww. half. <laughs> so that was a bummer. But Todd at the Podcasting Awards was on it immediately, took care of everything. They are really professional over there. And the new one came and it's perfect. Great. Yeah. Hooray, trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope for more this year. Right? Fingers and toes crossed. Good. All right. If you enjoyed this absolutely devastating episode, (laughs) please don't give up. (laughs) Just go to your podcast app and leave us a rating and or review. We would really appreciate it. And it helps us out a lot. And Annie is still trying to get to 1000 ratings on iTunes USA. And we're so close. So close. We can smell it. We are. We really can. We're getting very close and we're so grateful. If you need any information on how to contact us, where to listen to us, where you can buy our merch, how to join our Patreon, you can find all of that on our website, which is freshhellpodcast.com. And speaking of Patreon, you can also go right to the Patreon site and type in Fresh Hell Podcast and you will find us there. What else? Come join our Facebook group. Just the nicest group of people on the interwebs, we promise. It's it's a nice place to be. On Facebook, just search for Fresh Hell Podcast Murder. Yeah, come join before before they shut us <laughs> down for promoting violence. Because we share articles about murderers. Yeah. Also promoting <sighs> um organized crime because I shared a mugshot. Gang activity, of, right? Yeah, mugshot of Pablo Escobar. How dare I? How very dare I? <laughs> How dare you? Please tell your pets we said hi. We got so many cool new pets. Somebody has a turkey. I saw a goat. What else did I see last week that people posted? Uh, somebody's communicating with the crows. 
Uh, I think that's the other Johanna. Yes. Tell them we love them. Tell them we miss them. Hug them, cuddle them, give them treats. And not only be kind to your pets and to your fellow human beings, also be kind to yourself. Because it's not the worst times we are in, but they are also not... It's not, it's not fun, you know? It's not fun. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> it's, it's just... It's just... It's not been great. <laughs> it's going to get better. It's going to be fine. I mean, it's not true. There are still things that are great. There are. There are. And... We shouldn't be so negative. No, it's going to get better again. And just remind yourself when it gets hard that you're going to be all right. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Choose. Get out the other side. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>